This is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations, and you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Wonderful. What a joy it is to be with Jubilee Church this morning. I um, trust that you have come expecting that God is going to meet with you in uh, some amazing ways. Good, good. When you turn in your Bibles, please, to uh, Luke chapter 7. I know you guys have been working through um, Luke, but I want to just uh, pick up on one or two things. Um, For those of you who don't know anything about me, um, I am part of... uh, um, the family of churches that uh, uh, this church belongs to called New Frontiers. And uh, I get the privilege, together with a team, of working in what's called Frequency Trusting. We get to serve in different nations, helping people encounter the voice of God, helping people encounter their Father. Um, and we've seen God do some just incredible things in the nations over the last uh, few uh, years together, uh, just seeing healings, many healings, many signs and wonders, many breakthroughs, many people uh, just coming home to Father's love. Uh, One of the things I love about the job that I get to do is I get to uh, really introduce people into the goodness of God because he's really very good and he's quite happy. He's not grumpy. He's really good and wants to meet with many of you today. And uh, this morning as I come to share, I'm going to trust God that there will be a real sense of his presence and that many of you will encounter him in just a fresh and a wonderful way. So Luke chapter 7, it's a familiar story. In verse 36, we're picking up the woman who broke the alabaster flask upon the feet of Jesus. And it says in verse, chapter, in verse 36 of Luke 7, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I suppose for whom he cancelled the larger debt. He answered to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. 
go in peace. Your faith has came to go in peace. Father, I ask you this morning that you would help me communicate your truth. I ask you this morning that uh, at the end of uh, this session, we would be more in love with Jesus. I pray, God, that you would come by your Spirit even right now and meet with us in an incredible way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This story is jam-packed, full of incredible nuances, full of incredible bits, that when you begin to understand it, it has the potential to radically change your life. Right? I I love it because it, it, it takes the story of a, a woman who is considered to be nothing, a woman who's considered to be a prostitute and brings her right into the center of God's purpose as an example of what I call an extravagant or crazy praiser. And uh, if I were back home, I would be uh, calling this message um, getting your crazy praise on. And so I hope you're ready for this because uh, we're going to get our crazy praise on at the end of this. All right. Uh, in the UK, I call it shame-free worship, just because I want to make it sound a little bit nicer. Um, I love the story because really it speaks of a passionate woman who's encountered a passionate saviour. And uh, God wants to encounter you today in the very same way. How many of you know that if we want to see an ongoing expression of the supernatural activity of heaven, we're going to have to find out what heaven is like and build our culture in the same way that heaven's culture is built. Make sense? And so if we're to see something of heaven on earth, the culture that is replicating in heaven has to be replicated on earth. And I don't know if you've noticed, but wherever you open um, a revelation of heaven, whenever someone, both in the Old and in the New Testament, has an encounter with a heavenly uh, realm, the first thing that you'll notice is how heaven is saturated in worship. Heaven is saturated in crazy kind of worship. I mean, it is wild. It is outrageous. For those of you who don't like loudness, there's only ever going to be a half hour silence for the whole of eternity. (laughs) So brace yourself. The rest of the time, it's like the sound of rushing waters. It's the sound of trumpets. It's the sound of crazy praise taking off their crowns, thrown into the dust. And for eternity, you're going to be hearing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I mean, heaven is just, it's full of, of this unpredictable, crazy, extravagant, lavish outpouring of worship. And if we want to see something of the supernatural continue, if we want to learn how to live in the place of of shaking the dust off of our feet, if we want to live in the place of not walking in disappointment, we're going to have to learn how to become those who extravagantly worship Him. And God's looking for some extravagant worshippers today. And I've found that many Christians... When they come to worship, they really struggle to be extravagant. They really struggle to pour out their heart in worship, mainly because of past events, mainly because of past sin. And I get to travel to many different places, and the number one thing 
the crucial setting is Julian, just as I begin to enter into the presence of God, just as I begin to come into that wonderful sense of his presence, suddenly I'm bombarded with thoughts of sin that happened in the past. Suddenly I come under shame and judgment and guilt and there's a sense of fear in approaching him and I don't know what it is but I can't seem to break through. I don't know if you're here today and you can identify with that but I know I could. For a long time I entered into the place of worship and just as I was wanting to connect with God, it was like there would be an avalanche of thoughts of uh, a past sin or even present sin and, and a thought of avalanche of, uh, 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 of guilt and judgment. I feel absolutely horrible in the presence of God and it acted like a block so that I couldn't enter in to a place of extravagant and wild worship. Yeah, what I love about this story is this story shows us what it's like to break through the protocol. It shows us what it's like to break through the predictable, the norm, the, the, the very same old, same old. This woman breaks every cultural rule. She breaks every uh, uh, rule of etiquette. She, she doesn't care who's watching. She gets to him and pours out her love on him. And the culture that the story would have been set in was a culture that was dominated by shame and by guilt. It was dominated by judgment and fear. And I can identify a little bit with this. You know, I grew up in a, in a shame-based culture in South Africa. I grew up in uh, church in the 80s and 90s. And uh, back then, shame was the way you controlled people. I know some of you can identify with this. And uh, you had to look good, smell good, act good, be as good as can be on the outside, lest anyone find out about who you really were and could say, shame on you. I remember going to church as a kid and my folks driving in the car and they sang to us, now remember kids, what happens in the Adams family stays in the Adams family. You know what I'm talking about? You, you, you know what it's like and you, you've just had a massive fight. The family's all upset and angry and you walk into church with a smile as great big as can be and you're like, hallelujah, Jesus is in the house. Meanwhile, you've just had a massive fight and everyone's a bit grumpy. You can identify with that, can't you? Well, some of you can. Shame was such a big deal for us in, in South Africa. I remember the first time uh, I came to the UK. We South Africans are silly sometimes. You've got to love us. We we have somehow confused shame with someone being cute. And so the first time I ever came to uh, the UK, I remember I'll never forget. I saw this little baby, and I, the mum said, "Oh, won't you pray for this little baby?" And I grabbed the little baby and went, "Oh, shame!" And the mum grabbed the baby back and said, "There's nothing wrong with my baby," and walked off. <laughs> And I was like, cultural lesson number one, don't say shame in a UK context. It does not mean cute. <laughs> but I remember growing up and you had to make sure you lived, you lived a particular way. You had to make sure you obeyed the rules. You had to make sure that you, you looked good. You had to make sure that you, you acted good. You had to make sure that everything externally was right, even though internally everything was messed up. And the problem with shame-based communities is it produces an inauthenticity, doesn't it? Because suddenly you have to have a mask. You have to make sure that everything it looks good on the externals. I remember my friend falling pregnant out of wedlock. 
And the church dealt with her with such shame and guilt, far worse than Jesus ever would have. Shame is a powerful thing because what shame does is it binds you to something that you've done either in the past or in the present and somehow you can't ever walk free from it. It's either put on you. Shame, you know, shame happens in two ways. Either it comes on you or something that you've done as a result, you've got shame on you. And, and I see so many Christians living in shame. And, and shame-based cultures, particularly in in, uh, in, West, in developing world cultures, it's so important to keep faith. It's so important to make sure that you, you've got it all right. Yet you could be deeply struggling on the inside. And I know what it's like because I was a professional Pharisee for 10 years. I had everything externally right, yet inside I was struggling with my own sin. I remember as a young youth pastor struggling with pornography, thinking, how am I ever going to get free from this? But I, who do I tell? Who do I talk to? Because if I tell someone, my, my position, my, my, my place in the community is going to be taken from me. Because shame always robs. Shame always steals. And shame holds you in a place of bondage. And this is the kind of culture this woman would have been in. A, a, a shame-based culture should have known what it's like because she was a prostitute. She didn't know what it's like to carry shame, to, to have the disdain and the disapproval of everyone around her because she was a prostitute. Not only that, it was a culture that was highly based on judgment. I don't know if you noticed, the Pharisees love judging, don't they? They love telling you what you're doing wrong but never ever lift a finger to help you. And that's exactly what would happen in this context. They would have been waiting for a moment to point a finger at this woman saying, look at what they're doing wrong. I find, particularly in the UK, we kind of live in a bit of a judgment-based culture, don't we? And so when anyone steps up about the periphery to do anything significant, people point the finger and say, who do you think you are? Judgment's different from shame. And that judgment doesn't care simply about your position or about uh, um, uh, where you've been or, or the things that you've gone through. What judgment does is it wants you to conform into a particular way of being so that you don't think you're better than someone else. And so uh, I find it fascinating that particularly in the UK and in, in Western world societies, it's all about you better obey the rules because if you don't, we're going to chop your head off. And we're going to judge you. Who do you think you are to try anything significant? I remember when I first came to the UK, I um, was standing in a queue. I find there's something that I still am flabbergasted about this culture. One is that you obey the speed limit. In South Africa, it's a serving suggestion. <laughs> Stop actually just means pause in South Africa. And so I'm, I'm always surprised at how how obedient people are just in case they do something wrong and get judged, of course. And the other thing I find fascinating is the ability that English people have to queue. It is phenomenal. In Africa, you've got to kind of elbow your way to the front and hope you get there, right? So I remember coming to the bank thinking to myself, cool, I'm going to stand, you know, just going to get right to the front, you know, standing in this queue and it's quite a long queue, and there's a gap. So being African, I take the gap. 
And I'm thinking, cool, I've just jumped at least 10 people ahead, you know. Because that's nothing wrong for me. Meanwhile, everyone else is fuming. I can just imagine him going, that kid must be from South Africa. Look at him, look at what he's just done. But no one dares step out of the periphery and say, excuse me, sir, who do you think you are to do that? Because if they do, even though there's an injustice, they're afraid that they'll have someone else point at them as they step out in judgment or as they step out in turn to tell me what to do right. And I find that judgment cultures where your performance is the most important thing, where your, your conforming is prized above your diversity, I find that in judgment cultures people are afraid to step out to do anything. And this woman would have been in a similar context of judgment where, where she would have known that if she stepped out of the periphery, if she stepped out of what was normal, she would have been told off. Yet this woman breaks through. She breaks through the rules. She breaks through the protocols. She breaks through every single aspect of uh, conformity to get to the one that she loves. The story is outrageous. Listen, what would have happened in these days is that there would have been two rooms in, in a Pharisee's house. When they had a dinner party, they would invite some of the riffraff, they'd invite the prostitutes, the strollers, the street uh, people, they'd invite some tax collectors, and they would invite them, and there'd be two rooms, one for the VIP, which would be for all the kind of Pharisees and the teachers and the who's who and the kind of cool zoo. They'd be over there, and they'd have this incredible lush kind of laid-back seating. It would be amazing. And then another room would be a room for the riffraff, for the broken, for the, for the prostitutes, for the losers. And the reason why they'd be invited is so that the Pharisee could go, Oh, look at how amazing I am. I even invited some poor people for dinner. And, and it would kind of be like walking through the airplane. You know, you've got to walk through first class to get to cattle class. Lord Jesus, more first class flights, please. Um, and you kind of go walk through and you can see them all sipping champagne and you know that that ain't your seat. You're going to have to carry on. And they would do this until the riffraff would walk through and see the lamb the beautiful lamb. They'd see all the food, they'd see it all happening there and they'd have to sit down and wait. Wait till they would taken their fill, wait till they would eaten it all and then they'd get the leftovers. This is why Jesus is so radical. You see, a little bit earlier the Bible calls Jesus or people, Pharisees called Jesus a wine-biver and a glutton. And the reason they did that was not because he ate too much or he drank too much. The reason why he did that was because, the reason why they did that was because in Jesus' dinner parties, the people who sat in the VIP section were the prostitutes, were the lowlifes, were the scum of the earth, were the, were the street workers, were the people who no one wanted. He got them to sit right in first class section to eat their fill first. That 
Brothers and sisters, is an exact picture of the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, many of us think that we deserve an invite to the first class section, we deserve an invite to the VIP section, when actually we're no worse than any of the prostitutes, no worse than any of the thieves, no worse than any of the so-called riffraff. And Jesus is so kind that he comes and says to you, I want you to come and sit in the first class section where you get to eat your full. That is the good news right there. If you're not a Christian here today, can I encourage you? That's the beauty of Jesus. He turns everything upside down on its head. He completely is counterculture. He's not like this world where status and money and the appeal of wealth is what satisfies or what sets you apart. He is totally transcendent in that he calls you despite your position in life, despite where you are, and says, come and have a seat at the most important part of the table. Wow, that's the good news. And so Jesus goes and sits down and what's incredible in this picture is that this woman would have been checking out what's happening. She would have been there, brought her alabaster flask of ointment. Some commentators say that she probably wasn't going to waste it on Jesus. But she saw something happening that completely undid her. She saw this pharisaical spirit the spirit that says, I'm cool, I, I've got it all together, I, 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 I obey all the rules and you don't. That's the heart of religion. The heart of religion says, I did, I worked, I obey, rather than his grace has made me who I am. And this Pharisee would have invited Jesus in, not because he wanted Jesus to come and hang out with him, but because he was wanting to test Jesus out. And it's incredible what you see happening in this context, because Jesus gets invited and she is so overwhelmed, this prostitute, that he's not offered any of the kind of Middle Eastern hospitality that he should have been. You see, this Pharisee was making a point to Jesus. Don't think you're honored here because you're not. Yet this woman sees the dishonor, sees the fact that they've not loved him, sees the fact that they've not served him, and she breaks through the protocol to get to him in order to do what the Pharisaical spirit could never do, and that's radically love Jesus. You see, if I had to come to Graham's house, right, and uh, Graham looked at me and said, Hey, Julian, welcome. Come on in. Yeah, he'd be offering me some particular hospitalities, I hope. And it would be good hospitality, I'm sure. So he invite me and said, Julian, please come in. So nice to have you. Let me take your coat. And then he can invite me into his lounge. And there would be this amazing chair, a, an amazing sofa, like one of those kinds of lazy boy sofas that massage you and that have speakers in with like whale sounds to help you relax. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and, and this chair would be like Graham's chair. None of the kids get to sit on it. Not even his wife gets to sit on it. This is his chair. And if I came to him and, and, and said, hey, I, here I am, and he'd be inviting me into his lounge, and he'd look at that chair, he'd look at me, he'd look at that chair again and say, do you know what, Julian? You get to sit in my chair today. And he'd get me nestled into the chair really nicely, switch on a really good massage, particularly for the lower back, and, you know, just be incredibly nice, heated seats, and then whale songs to help me relax. Because he wanted to serve me. He was a brilliant host. He said, Julian, 
I know how much you love coffee. And I have sourced coffee from Kenya just this morning. It's come in. And I have just roasted it this afternoon in anticipation of your visit. I freshly ground it and I've made you a cup of coffee just the way you like it. An Americano with a splash of hot water and a little bit of cold milk. Just the way you like it. Please take notes. Just the way you like it. I mean, it would be, I'd be like, this guy is amazing. And if he was an outstanding host, he'd say to me, I also know that you so love to have biscotti with your coffee. And so I have made a fresh batch of biscotti with almonds and a touch of orange uh, um, rind in it just to balance the flavors out. It's going to be amazing with you. I mean, that would be a miracle, but it's amazing. I can't wait for you to taste it. That would be good hosting, I think. Don't you think? And that's what's supposed to be happening in this text with Jesus. He comes in and, and they open the door and nothing is offered him. And this woman goes, I've got to do something. I've got to break through. I cannot live like this. I need to worship him. And so she breaks through. She climbs over men. It's illegal to do that. She's touching men. She's not supposed to do that publicly just to get to the one that she loves. And she breaks this alabaster jar and a fragrance of worship fills this room. And she extravagantly begins to pour out this alabaster jar of ointment all over the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine how awkward it must have been at that point? Can you imagine the eyes looking? And Simon goes, hmm, if this guy was really that spiritually intuitive, he would have known what kind of woman this is. Isn't it funny how often radical worship produces a judgment in your heart? Isn't it funny how when someone else is just worshipping a little bit louder and a little bit more extravagant than you, you're thinking, hmm, I know what you were doing this weekend. Let's have a little chat about that. Yeah, you are Sunday morning lifting your hands in the air like you just don't care. I know where you've been. <laughs> Do you know what Jesus does? He says to Simon, he says, Simon, here's the deal. Here's the deal. You and this woman owe me something. And you cannot repay. But because I'm so good, I'm letting you off the hook. That which you owe me, you don't have to repay me. You see, brothers and sisters, here's the incredible thing. We can sometimes look at our lives and think it's really good. But the reality is, it doesn't matter where you're at. If you're a Christian or not a Christian, it doesn't matter where you're at. We all at one time owed Jesus something that we could never repay him. But he let us off the hook. I remember I was in this meeting once, and there was one of those guys, you know one of those kind of crazy worshippers that shout and scream and hallelujah and shake and laugh and just get a little bit crazy in a meeting? And he was right at the back, one of those kind of guys who, if you had a guest, you were hoping that when you brought that guest to church, he was not going to be there. You know what I'm talking about? Can I be honest in church? Good place to be honest. And um, 
So he was like going for it. He's like, hallelujah. I love you, Jesus. You're amazing. And I'm standing in front of the secular pastor. Dude, who is that guy? I mean, really, he's cramping my style. I'm going to have to preach in a moment. And the pastor said, oh, that's brother so-and-so. He's been set free from a long-term drug addiction to heroin. As I got back to my chair and sat down, the Lord said to me, son, the only difference between you and him is he's more aware of the grace he's received than you have. You see, this woman was not afraid to do something crazy and out of the ordinary to express her love for Jesus. When last have we done that? When last have we broken the protocol of 40 minutes of worship? You know, three songs in, a tongue, an interpretation. She's outrageous. This stuff is front page news kind of stuff. It's scandalous. And it's so easy to be in meetings and look at other people's external responses to God or external extravagance toward God and judge that simply because the fact is that they're probably more in love with Jesus than we are at that moment. I was uh, in a meeting just a year ago because you'd think I'd learn this lesson. But just about a year ago, I'm invited to do this conference, man of power for the hour, anointed and appointed, got an unction to function. I am ready to rock and roll. I mean, it is going to be amazing. I've been praying. I've been fasting. I'm ready to preach the word in power. I'm like, I've got it happening. My Pentecostal is all over me. I'm ready to go for it. I'm standing up and I'm praying in tongues, just getting ready with the sermon because we're going to see some signs and wonders in a moment. And then, and if you have this ministry, please forgive me, a flag waver came and stood in front of me. (laughs) For those of you who don't know about flag waving ministries, there are some people who are called by God to wave flags. And I don't mind that in worship because it's an expression of worship. The problem is it was in front of me. And so this person is waving their flag and it's flicking in my face and I'm like having to dodge this flag and I'm getting ready to preach the word at a conference. And I'm like, Lord Jesus, why is this flag waver flicking their flag in front of my face right now? Why can't they just go to the back? Do they not know the concept of personal space? Personal space. And like right up here, I'm having to dodge his flag because he's going a bit crazy. And I'm like, no, go to the back. I'm trying to worship Jesus. Do you not know about preach? You're cramping everything. The anointing now has left the room because you are waving your flag in front of my face. The problem is that as that's happening, the Lord says to me, Julian, do you see that flag down there? Now, I know that when God asks me a question, it's not because he's looking for an answer. He's wanting to expose something in my heart at that moment. So I'm standing there thinking, yeah, I see that flag, Lord. He says, I want you to go and pick that flag up and I want you to worship me. At that point, I'm going, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) 
What is going on? Lord, do you not know that I'm the main speaker at this conference? That I, they're going to think I'm a little bit odd. I mean, you know, flag ministry is generally for ladies, not for guys. And it's purple. I don't do purple. It's not my color. It doesn't go well with my skin. So I'm like, Lord Jesus, are you serious? You want me to go and get a flag, pick it up, and wave it in the air? I mean, really? And so I'm standing there now and I'm wrestling with Jesus because I wish I could say I was obedient. But uh, I wasn't really obedient at that point. I'm like, no, Lord, we can't do this. Surely not. I'm going through all the reasons. Is this God's voice? Let me quickly check it out. Let me weigh it up. And the more God, the more I'm weighing it up, the more God is saying, get the flag, boy, get the flag. So I'm standing thinking, oh, Lord. Now it's about a half hour later. And there is now no need for any flag waving because it's the quiet part of ministry. So all the flags have gone down except for my one which I've just picked up and I'm like, there we go, I've done it, Lord, put it down. Some eyes looking at me like, whoa, you didn't think flag waving ministry. And the Lord said to me, son, I want you to learn not to judge other people's outward worship at the expense of finding out what's on the inside of their heart. How many of you being in that moment where you think someone else just get a little bit crazier than you have? You think someone else worship just a little bit louder and you're gone, what is that person doing? Gone very quiet suddenly in this church. You see, this woman stood there and she went, I don't care how extravagant this looks, I'm going to get my crazy praise on and I'm going to worship the one that I love. And do you know what happens? Is she breaks this alabaster jar upon his feet. And it's incredible. Many people think that's the most extravagant thing that's happening in the story. It's not. What's really extravagant in this story is that as she breaks this alabaster jar, she lets down her hair. You see, in Jewish life, a woman never let down her hair publicly. In Jewish life, a woman made sure that her hair was tied up. The only time that she could was on honeymoon night when she would let down her hair in front of her husband and she'd say to her husband, I am yours and only yours. And this story is outrageous. Not because she wastes a whole lot of money on Jesus. Not because she breaks protocol. Not because she is willing to even be stoned. But because in that moment, she lets down her hair. And she takes what should happen privately and brings it out into the public arena so that everyone who was watching would have known what she was saying to Jesus is, I am yours and only yours. The reason why we do public worship is because that which happens privately comes together publicly as an overflow and an extension of our love for Jesus so that everyone in the world will know that He and only He is the one that we love and adore. 
That's why we're called to extravagant worship. That's why we're called to wild, outrageous worship. The kind of worship that God loves is not simply the worship that is private, neatly packaged, but it's the kind of worship that says, I don't care what people think. I need to break through the protocol and tell him that I love him and only he is the one that I love. Oh, brothers and sisters, she takes that which is private and brings I want to tell you, in this country, in the next 10 years, we're going to have a battle around this thing. Because as the increase of fundamentalism begins to grow and people become anti-fundamentalist, worship is going to be one of the things that we're going to have to fight for in this nation that publicly we get to say to Jesus, you and only you are the one that we love. You see, we're not called to be politically correct. We're called to be prophetically direct. She lets down her hair. She lets down her hair. She says, only you, and only you are the one that I want. When last have you let down your hair in public? When last did you just say, you know, I don't care who's watching. I'm going to tell him I love him. I don't care whether it's comfortable or not. I'm breaking through this because I need to tell him that I love him, that he is the only one that I love. And you know what's outrageous about the story? Is that Jesus at any moment can say to this woman, stop it. How dare you worship me like this? Do you know that this is inappropriate? Do you know this is not right? And at that moment, that woman would have walked out of the room with guilt and judgment and shame all over her. At that moment, that woman would have walked out as a prostitute, knowing that she was less than nothing. But Jesus is so very kind, brothers and sisters. What he does is he allows her to worship him. He allows her to pour out her extravagance upon him so that as people look at her, they move the blame from her and saying, look at this woman doing that to, I can't believe that rabbi is allowing himself to be defiled by that woman. I can't believe that rabbi is allowing himself to be worshipped like that. Does he know what he's doing? And all of the guilt and shame and judgment that should be on her gets transferred from her to him. So that he walks away with the blame and she walks away free. That is the good news. That is the good, if you're not a Christian, this makes sense. You can never get rid of your guilt. But he is so kind that in worship, in this moment of you surrendering your life to him, there's a divine exchange that happens. He takes your guilt, your shame, your judgment, and gives you his righteousness and right standing before God. You see, the reason why we worship so long and why we worship so loud is not because he needs it, but because we need to. Because in that moment of worship, there's a divine exchange that is happening. So that all of our shame, all of our guilt, our past, future and present sin is covered by his goodness. So that we get to come in full grace knowing that he gives us his kindness and goodness as we worship Him, as we love on Him. 
so that He is the one who has taken all of our guilt, all of the shame. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter where we've been. It doesn't matter the things we've been through. He is so kind that He says, I'll take that from you. That's why we worship the way we worship. That's why it's got to be extravagant. That's why it's got to be outrageous. That's why it cannot be quiet. It's got to be shouted from the rooftops. Jesus could have said, stop it. But he doesn't. And he gets the blame, so she goes free. Oh, oh, brothers and sisters, this should respond in radical worship. Your response right now should be crazy praise. Your response has got to be, I'm going to do more than just lift my hands and do a Pentecostal two-step shuffle. I need to do something. I need to do something. But what's even more outrageous in the story is at the end of the day, when everyone's gone home, everyone's done gossiping, everyone's done talking, everyone's taken their fill of food, there are two people that leave that room smelling the same. Jesus and a prostitute. <laughs> That's the kind of worship that I want. That's the kind of worship that I want to live in. That I walk away smelling like him. I walk away smelling like him. You see, that which you behold, you become like. If you're beholding your sin and your past life and your shame and your guilt, that's what you will live under. But if you're beholding Him in all of His beauty and splendor, if you let down your hair, you become a little bit more like Him every single day. Who do you want to smell like? When last have you let down your hair in worship? See, I don't fear any condemnation. I don't fear any judgment because Jesus died naked and he was shamed on the cross. He was judged on the cross. He didn't just die for my sin. He died for my shame. He died for my judgment. He died for my guilt so that I can radically come and worship him. I'm going to ask the band in a moment to come up. But here's my question. When last have you let your hair down? You see, the extravagant thing here is not an alabaster jar. The extravagant thing is a woman who said, I know this should be private, but I don't care who's watching. I need to tell everyone that I love him. That is outrageous. That is scandalous. That is getting your crazy praise on. When you stand to your feet, I preached my heart out this morning. Trust we're going to respond appropriately. Not for me, but for him.
Why don't you lift your hands and maybe close your eyes? You can just play very gently on the guitar if it's all right for now. Holy Spirit is going to come and rest upon many of you right now. I was preaching this recently in South Africa and there was a 71-year-old retired Elam minister from Scunthorpe in England who had his suit on and his tie on looking all prim and proper. At the end of the meeting, he walked up onto the stage, took his tie off, took his jacket off and stage-dived in the middle of worship. (laughs) Any stage-divers today? The reason why he did that was because he needed to get his crazy praise on. He needed to do something to extravagantly express his love for the Father. I've had people stand on their chairs during the sermon people running around the room. I don't know what you need to do. But you need to get extravagant in the next few moments. And the temptation is to give you words in a song and in overheads and project and say, oh, sing this song. This will be great. Oh, happy day. We can sing that song, but that's not the point. The point is a response from you right now. And it was a happy day. I know that will help us. But can I ask you just for a moment to be who you really are called to be? People say to me, Julian, the English aren't emotional. That's a lie. I've seen you lot in the football stadiums. I know what you're like. I know what you like when you watch X Factor. Strictly come dancing. I know what you're like. You're full of emotion. You know, emotion misplaced doesn't help anyone. It's got to be an emotion towards him. And so we're saying, why don't you begin to lift up either a shout or praise or adoration. Begin to tell Jesus how much you love him. Let your hair down. Get your crazy praise on. Begin to lift up your voices to Him. If you want to clap, if you want to shout, if you want to come and dance, I don't know what it is. If you want to get a flag, I don't know what it is. But can we lift up His name with a shout of praise? Can we lift up His name with the sound of singing? Can we lift up His name with great adoration today? You are worthy to receive honor and praise. You are worthy to receive glory. You are worthy, whoa, to receive worship and adoration. We're letting our hair down today, oh God. We're letting our hair down today. And we love you. We declare that you reign forever and ever and ever. Who is like our God? Who is like our God? Oh, worthy, worthy are you, Lord. Oh, come on, lift up his name. Lift up his name. Get your crazy praise on. Whoa.
Worthy, worthy. Worthy, worthy. Worthy of all the praise and adoration. Yeah. You reign forever. You reign forever. Oh, we lift up your name. We lift up your name, oh God. With the sound of sinning and adoration, be lifted high. Oh, oh, Come on. I want to hear the sound of lovesick warriors. Oh, he's worthy. There's no more shame. Your shame has been removed. There's no more judgment. It's been removed. There's no more guilt. It has been removed. All because of Jesus. All because of Jesus. Let's lift him up just a little bit longer. What you just applaud and shout out your praise just for another 30 seconds on the count of three. One, two, three. Let's shout out our praise. Come on. Worthy, worthy, worthy. Worthy, worthy, worthy. Join in.
Oh, you're worthy, Lord. You're worthy, worthy, worthy. Be our everything. Forever and ever. You are worthy, Lord. Be my everything. Just where you are, actually pouring out your affection to Him. His affection is just going to be poured out upon you. Oh, there he is. Let your glory come. Let your glory come. Let your glory come on everything. Let your glory come. Let your glory come. Let your glory come on everything. Some of you who've struggled with shame and judgment and guilt, we declare freedom over you right now. No more guilt, no more judgment, no more shame. You get to worship Him freely, you get to worship Him freely. There's a divine exchange that's happening. Today, if you're not a Christian, I cannot give a message like this without giving you an opportunity to respond. Today's a really good day to become a Christian. You know, the Bible says that all Abraham needed to do in order to be counted righteous was to believe. And today, all you need to do in order to stand before Jesus as righteous is to believe. To believe that what he did in his life and how he lived as a sacrifice for you, that your sins would be washed away so that you could be restored to the Father. It's as simple as believing that truth. With every eye closed and no one looking around, if you don't know what it's like to have your conscience cleansed, if you don't know what it's like to walk guilt-free, if you don't know what it's like to know that Jesus is your older brother and you've got a heavenly Father who loves you to bits, He's the kindest person I know. My life has changed because of that. And if you want to meet this kind, kind Jesus, who takes away your sin and gives you His right standing with Heavenly Father, today's a good day to become a Christian. With every eye closed, no one looking around right now, if you want to respond to the good news that your sins have already been forgiven, that you can have a relationship with the Father, and that all you need to do is believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. I want to ask you to quickly slip up your hand. No one's looking around. No one's 
No one's looking around right now. If you want to just quickly lift up your hand quite high and wave it. Thank you. Once you put up your hand, you can put it down. I'd love to pray with you later. Anyone else? We've got one person who's responding. Is there anybody else you want to respond to the good news of Jesus? He loves you so very much. Thank you, sir, for putting up your hand. Is there anyone else? That's two hands that have gone up now. Anybody else you want to respond? I don't want to close this meeting. Thanks for listening to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk or come along on any Sunday morning.